Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle, and you're listening to the Art and Mayfair podcast series. Uh, today we're at Richard James with David Begbie, and David has an in-store show organized by Milan-based art advisor, Helen Verola. It's on at Richard James until the 26th of August. Hi, David. How are you? Hi, Maeve. I'm very happy to be here. I'm happy to have you to, here. Uh, take an opportunity to say something about this collaboration. Well, I've been walking past uh, the sort of innovative mesh sculptures that sort of theatrically speak to you in the windows for the past few weeks. They've been up for a while. They kind of feel like a bit of a stage show on Clifford Street and Savile Row. Is there anything in that? Uh, yeah, actually. It's... Um I actually have worked with uh, a number of um, theatre designers in the past and the medium is actually it inspires lots of people in lots of different disciplines uh, right across the board and that includes uh, costume and stage design and photographers and anything more recently that you might call virtual or digital because it has that high-tech um, digital look but in point of fact it's very basic hands-on because I model the material whereas the, the end result looks as if it's being computer generated and if you think about when I first did my um, very first sculptures it's way back as a student in 1977 Were you at the Slade School of Art then? Uh, uh, I was in Cheltenham at the time and then I moved on to the Slade School. So, so in 1977, you were making what kind of sculpture? I was making life-size transparent mesh sculptures in space frames. Um, the key to understanding how I arrived at this particular medium is that I moved from painting into sculpture. I was looking for um, sculpture in my own terms, one that incorporated the sensibilities and the sensitivity um, and subtlety that you find in painting and drawing and I was looking for that in sculpture and um, consequently I never really got past the armature because for me it was three-dimensional drawing and if you think about what I do I literally am drawing in three-dimensional space uh, rather than because uh, you can't really pigeonhole what I'm doing it's it is sculpture, but it breaks all the rules. It's, it's very insubstantial, it's transparent. Um, it pushes boundaries of what classic sculpture yes, is. and in many ways, um, I, I use shadow projection uh, when I'm doing uh, exhibitions. I like the sculptures in different ways because they really are more about light than anything else. They, are, um, they hardly exist. They are 90% thin air. And in many ways, they are a skin. Interestingly enough, in the trade, where I actually buy the material, it's, um, it's known as steel cloth. And that actually gives you a clue into how I make them, because when I create a sculpture, I literally draw a pattern, like um, Richard James or Giorgio Armani or Christian Dior would do. I draw the pattern. In advance on the fabric of the mesh allowing for what will happen when it's literally transformed from 
a two-dimensional flat sheet into a three-dimensional object. The feeling of lightness and, and line is so other to what we normally think of sculpture, which is heavy and dense and rooted. I feel yours, if they were let off the plinth, would just fly into the air. Well, actually, that's exactly what I like to try to do. I, I suppose my biggest enemy as a, a sculptor is gravity. In many ways, the medium is so exquisite and is so demanding in its own way, that the way that it works optically. It wants to defy gravity. It implies that it doesn't actually exist. And that's what gives it its power. Visually, it's probably the most dynamic and unstable medium you could use to make sculpture. It would seem obvious that you don't like things in boxes and you don't like pigeonholes. And if there's a boundary, you're going to break through it. Yes, that's right. And I have, over the years, if you can imagine, um, tried lots of different directions. And the true nature of creativity is that uh, when, you, when you have an idea, it, it suggests 10 other ideas. And then you have to follow one of those. And that, again, suggests a multitude of ideas. So that the creative flow is generated. Um, and you know that the creativity is in process when you have just so many ideas. It suggests so many options. And so I've worked figuratively. Um, I've worked in pure abstract, almost to the point because the medium suggests it almost, I suppose, conceptually. And most recently, I've become the first artist to create a sculpture in the metaverse through a collaboration with a digital artist. Um, Robotrone and the hashtag Queens invited me to do a collaboration and um, it hasn't been released yet. This ex I, actually, yeah, no, the curiosity yes. to explore new mediums, it just doesn't, it doesn't diminish in your process at all. And, and for an artist who's covered a few generations, mm. uh, I want to go back to the beginning of who you are and, and what you do and why you do it. Well, it's interesting because why I did it was, um, why I chose that medium was I, I was literally looking for something which was, was certainly a contemporary medium. I was looking for a, you know, I mean, I don't see the point in, in doing anything in the creative arts unless it's cutting edge and new and unique and original. Um, so I was looking for something which, um, that I could really be interested in myself. It had to come from something deep within me. Otherwise, it, I couldn't see the point in doing anything at all. So it has to have meaning for me, which is why I literally invented something which was completely and utterly what I would call contemporary as a, as a medium for sculpture. But at the same time, it needed to have something that I felt deeply about. So literally, I created a marriage between what was virtually... Uh, non-existent contemporary material and a classical, deep-rooted um, subject which was about ourselves and how we see ourselves and how we see other people, about humanity. Obviously, I was inspired by the Greeks and a few 
more modern and contemporary artists such as Rodin and Michelangelo. Um, you know, they were my sort of heroes. Um, the classical Greeks worked to a sense of perfection. Whereas I wanted something more human, not quite so perfect. Although most people would look at one of my pieces and say that it's perfect. It's not actually, it's the imperfections, the imbalances, the slight asymmetry, which uh, gives each an individual piece uh, its uniqueness, its character and its humanity. So the marriage I've created is between being human, producing images for, for ourselves and creating what I call a contemporary archetypal image of, our, of ourselves, of the body. One that includes the polarities of masculinity and femininity and everything in between. And when I put two figures together, the material itself, the tensions and harmonies in the material created from one sheet act as an analogy for the tension and harmonies that you have in human relationships. Subliminally, those tensions and harmonies tell the viewer what's happening between the masculine and the feminine. And for me, the, the material is so sensitive, you can virtually, without understanding it yourself, see these qualities emerge. What's essential for your practice? That's a difficult question. <laughs> I, know. I think for you it is, because you're very open. I think you're open to fashion. That's why we're here. I think you're open to theater. I think you're open to radical ideas, to nature. So I think for you to choose what would be essential would be a difficult question. Uh, well, the essential, the most essential element is that I have a passion for what I'm doing. That uh, I want to explore and discover. And the medium itself is one which allows you to do that. Because quite frankly, even though I may set out to make a particular image, I really don't know what it's going to be like until it's done. Do you remember Savile Row and Mayfair from your art school days? Oh yes, I remember them from the art school days. Has it changed much? Um, it's gone through phases. The, uh, the, art, well, the London scene has gone through many phases. Um, big changes, actually. Um, I used to come here to see my heroes. At Waddington's and who are uh, your heroes? Oh, I suppose artists such as uh, painters. Actually, I, I I liked a lot of painters. Um, I'm going to come back on that because I have to remember who. I, I remember you know. coming here mm. in the 80s and 90s to go to Anthony D'Alfe and yes. making a, almost a pilgrimage to the Royal Academy and mm. Anthony Dolphe, because mm. if you didn't know what was happening on Cork Street, you didn't know what was happening in the world. And then I remember it happening again um, with the YBAs, mm -hmm. uh, and then things changed again, and the locations changed, but it's usually around this area that everything was happening. Well, I came here to see um, David Hockney's, and of course, Anthony de Fay was uh, promoting Gilbert and George, who turned out to be neighbours of mine when I used to live in Spitalfields. But there's a whole list of artists that I'd never heard of 
uh, and coming to Cork Street in particular is where you discovered who was doing what. And wearing what. Yes, and because wearing you, what. Because you mentioned Gilbert and George <laughs> and David yeah. Hockney, and they're yes. absolutely documented, as I'm sure you are, in what artists wear. I mean, mm. this is an important form of visual expression as well. That's why this area and the art world, for me, seem, seem to work hand in hand. That's right. I'm also used to exhibiting in Cork Street because um, when I left the Slade School, um, I already had a studio to work in down in Wapping. And uh, there were quite a few other artists uh, working down there at the time, such as Anish Kapoor. And um, I put on an open studio show, went on holiday to Crete, which is what I still do, I'm going there next week. <laughs> Been doing that for 40, over 40 years actually. Just so that I, it's not a holiday, it's a summer. I have to have a summer. And um, when I came back, there were all, all sorts of galleries that were interested in my brand new exhibition of completely transparent steel mesh sculpture. So I ended up with uh, one particular gallery called Salomon Caro who were in Knightsbridge and then they moved to Cork Street and opened their gallery with a solo show of my work. So, I mean, it was all very exciting in those days. Do you remember the numbers at the openings? Oh, lots. Hundreds of people and you used to sell artworks at openings. It doesn't work that way these days. So there's one very big change. The other big change was um, a lot of the West End galleries moved out into the East East ends into much bigger, cheaper spaces, so they have much more um, scope with how they exhibited. Instead of there being a sort of a price per square inch of wall space that they were so concerned about, you know, you had to put something that was of a particular value on the wall, otherwise it didn't pay the rent, didn't make sense. Uh, and that still exists to a certain extent, but- A lot of them have moved back. Yes. To, a lot to of them this area, which is just great. Yes. A lot of them moved back and it was like an excursion, an experiment. And uh, uh, it worked for a while. Um, but ultimately, I suppose the, the main reason they've moved back into this sort of area was, first of all, they're in good company with designer shops, clothes shops. Uh, and um, secondly, um, I think most of the customers are here in this area of London most of the customers. Um, and it's also an international uh, center for visitors. Whereas, you know, rooting around in the, in the sort of back streets of Hackney is uh, not quite such an easy thing to do. So in mm -hmm. a sense, this is still the stage. Yeah, as um, you put the it. auction houses, the museums, yes. the collectors, the luxury brands, mm. the artists, the yeah. fashion houses mm. all have something to do with the art world. And That's they all, right. they're all major players mm. in in how the artist's career moves, I think. Yes. Y you've done fashion collaborations before. Mm. Yeah. Um, I suppose uh, just to follow on from what you were saying just now, the thing about London is it is actually quite small, the center. And where you have all of these things happening at once is where it works best. Because, you know, you're literally a few steps away from one discipline, 
and you find an, uh, a new discipline, then you find the, the, the ballet in Covent Garden, and you find contemporary dance. And you find grounded. street art. Yes, and street art. And your eye moves so fast all yes. the time. And you could do it on foot too. When you've lived in London for a few years, you realise that it's crazy getting the tube from one place to the next because it's by, by the time you've walked downstairs or taken a lift down of the escalator back up, you could have walked because actually it's just around the corner. Lots of tube stations all very close to each other. And you finally realise how small and accessible London is. Yes, I've worked, I've collaborated in the past with um, Giorgio Armani, for instance. Um, we, we did a fantastic collaboration. It was a, a big event uh, in his store in Brompton Road. It was um, Emporio Armani was the store because it had the, the biggest space. But I did a charity event and an exhibition in store, in the windows and throughout the store. And um, we had the students of the Ballet Rombert who did a, a special performance, which they curated, and they all dressed in fishnet and, you know, transparent. The boys were more naked than the girls, actually. I think the boys wanted to show off more, but... Um, <laughs> That's unusual. Yeah, I'm not so sure it's that unusual in the ballet world, but it was a pretty obvious at the time. But, I mean, they were literally like living sculptures. They dressed to be the sculptors and put movement into the... Oh, you must have been in heaven. Well, I was, and uh, uh, Bjork did a special version of um, Venus as a boy. And the reason that I chose that particular uh, piece of music, I mean, she was, she just hit the scene, really. But Venus as a boy seemed to sum up Giorgio Armani's, um, his, his, ethos really was that he invented um, masculine women for clothes. He invented the jacket and the suit for women. Uh, so Venus as a boy seemed actually, in a way, very appropriate. Like you said, it has to be cutting edge. Mm, absolutely cutting edge. And she did a special version of Venus as a boy for the dance routine. Which she was, was there a slower, on the night? She wasn't there, but she uh, dedicated this piece of music to the event, which was the... Uh, one of the first uh, Terence Higgins Trust charity events. And I can tell you, the uh, when I arrived for the opening, it was like arriving for a sort of um, the opening of a film at Leicester Square. The crowds and the queues were going right around the block. And I was very pleased to jump out of a cab and, you know, go straight to the head of the queue. <laughs> but it was a really exciting evening, you know, and. Uh, incredibly popular and it was a, a, a major collaboration and and um, other fashion collaborations i know there's more well you have to remind me now what did you there? collaborate oh, yes. with dior of course yeah tell, most tell recently, me about this yes most recently um actually simultaneously to uh exhibiting here at richard james's uh, uh christian dior commissioned me for it's a very special year for christian dior because um they're celebrating the opening um, of the original store in Paris, in Montaigne Avenue in Paris. They've refurbed it, spent millions refurbing it from top to toe, years. And uh, they wanted a very special first um, window show. So they asked me to uh, 
help them with um, a number of ob objects. First of all, um, the Christian Dior Grand Torso. They wanted a, a steel mesh, uh, all, all gold, everything in gold, gold leaf, um, Grand Torso version, a transparent version of their mannequin. So I did that. And then they asked me to look at the uh, iconic medallion chair, which uh, Christian Dior used to sit on one of these um, when he did his fashion shows. The original one is from the Palace of Versailles. I think it's Louis the 14th, 15th or 16th. I can't remember, that's my shame. But um, he, he had this medallion chair. So Christian Dior's medallion chair was um, dated all the way back to those to that period, and consequently, he produced a range of iconic medallion chairs for sale. So they sent me one and said, "Could you do your version?" So I did, and they ordered twelve of those. Um, and then they wanted roses, which are not haven't been shown yet, all in gold. And finally, they ordered some miniatures. And I've got one here, which everyone in the room could see. And it's a tiny, exquisite little miniature. And um, the reason they did that was the spiral staircase at 30 Grand Montaigne in Paris has a glass case spiraled that goes from floor to ceiling, five floors or so. And it is completely um, filled as a collector would collect things of miniature everything you could imagine from the from the fashion world and the art world. As you go up the spiral staircase, you, you follow this glass spiraling glass case, which is full of, and it is just magnificent. And it's, um, it's a history of Christian Dior's inspirations. I think uh, you will know this, that Dior was originally a gallerist before he was a ran a fashion house absolutely and his collection is extensive mm. um, i know the the bond street store has work that's museum quality for instance the libel chandelier was at the hayward when the hayward opened it's um such an honor and it runs in my opinion like a museum of everything sublime and beautiful well i think he's a collector a collector of ideas um collector of inspirations and that shows in his design and um, he's obsessive as well like most artists are obsessed in a, obsessive in a certain way that you have a particular vision and um, it takes you in whatever direction it wants you to go and that's more or less the story of my life and I, I think you know I can recognize that in most people of I mean creativity is not the special domain of the artist. You can see creativity at play, true creativity, in virtually anything. Um, when people are doing something with excellence and they're finding it easy, it just looks like second nature. You know that that is creative energy. And it's divine energy too. Yes. It raises the human spirit. It, it feels like we've been talking about this since we started talking, but it is one of the questions. So I'm going to ask you in case there's more. What is art for? <laughs> uh, well, uh, you probably won't like this answer. 
<laughs> oh, try me. But funnily enough, when I was working with Christian Dior, I actually asked that question myself. What are the differences and what are the similarities between what you might call fine art and design? And, well, I came to the conclusion that uh, a design object or something that is designed has a purpose and a use. Clothes, you know, they work on more than one level. They're, you wear them, but they also um, allow you to express yourself in, as an individual, uh, which is why the fashion industry in London in particular, you see it in London more than any other country in the world, that people pick and choose, they mix and match fashion, contemporary and um, what you might call retro, they mix and match. And uh, to express their uniqueness and their individuality. And the answer really to the question of what is art for is design is for something useful. Fine art is basically useless because it's nothing other than a work of art. So at the polarities, fine art at its purest is useless. It can't be anything other than a work of art. If you can live with one of those useless pieces of work <laughs> forever, and I could get it for you, what would it be? Well, Money doesn't factor into the equation. Okay, well, if you can get me one, I'd like a Rodan for a start. Torso of a young girl would be the perfect one because that inspired me right from the beginning. I don't think I could be much more specific than that. David Begbie, is there anything I haven't asked you that you wish I had of? I've touched on masculine and feminine and everything in between. And there's one screamingly obvious thing about the fashion industry and about the fashion world, that um, sitting in a men's fashion shop begs, the question begs to be asked, why is there so much more available to women as fashion than there is to men? If you go into any uh, department store in the world, you have about five floors of women's clothes and accessories and about half a floor for men, unless it's the sports and fishing department. Men really do get a raw deal, I think. And when you come into a shop like Richard James and you see the evidence shows that they don't have so much at their disposal in terms of choice. But when you see a designer take something uh, simple like a, a jacket in particular, he can make life much more interesting by producing a jacket that really has some character and some soul. Um, and I think in many ways men, although they do get a raw deal, um, are being catered for on another level but it's not quite so obvious. I mean, women have a great time and it's sort of, to walk into a shop, it's full of the most extraordinary things that can transform the way you express yourself, transform your body in many ways to, you know, to um, create an image of yourself that you find exciting yourself and you know is gonna be fun and exciting for other people to see. Uh, men don't have that so much in their vocabulary themselves. It's not really part of our culture, although it has been in the past. If you go back to the time of the original medallion chair, men were wearing most exotic things. 
Um, but that seems to have got lost somewhere along the line. Um, although you find it in some disciplines and some areas in, fa in the fashion world, I still think women have uh, a much better time. It's much more fun. David Begby, thank you very much for being part of Art and Mayfair, a podcast series. Thank you, Maeve. It's been a pleasure. For all those interested in seeing David Begby's miniature medallion chair, go to bondstreet.co.uk.